0: Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Zechariah, the 14th chapter. So next to the last book in the Old Testament, the last chapter. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 9, although we will be dealing with the entire chapter. Verse 1, chapter 14. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city." Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. And half the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto... Azael, yea, ye shall flee like ye fled from before the earthquake, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night. but it shall come to pass that at even time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, half of them toward the hinder sea, in summer and in winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord, and his name one. May God add his blessing to this, the reading and the hearing of his word. We've been dealing with the man of prophets, and particularly with the prophet Zechariah. We've seen that the prophet Zechariah, who prophesied in the days of the rebuilding of the temple after their return from exile, as he encourages the people in the work there, to go ahead in spite of the opposition, and then he goes on in terms of encouragement to tell them of uh, the things that God will do in terms of their protection from every force that comes against them, in terms of His presence, uh, uh, picturing this in symbolism as a rider among the myrtle trees in a low place, the low state of Israel, and yet God's presence there in the shadows, but watching over his own, again speaking of a man going forth with a measuring line to measure the city and then being told not to measure it because this city would grow until no walls could contain it. In various forms of symbolism, he pictures God's provision and protection of his people. And then he moves on to depict things that will take place toward the end of time as we know time. We saw last uh, week how uh, you spoke of the fountain that would be opened to the house of Israel and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Uh, that fountain has been flowing for 2,000 years or longer in a sense, but for 2,000 years it hasn't really been flowing for the house of Israel uh, by and large the nation of Israel blinded to the things of their own Messiah. Uh, Blindness in part has happened unto Israel, but uh, prophesying here of a day when the fountain shall be opened to the house of Israel, uh, speaking of a day when their eyes shall be opened In the tenth verse of the twelfth chapter, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, their eyes opened to their Messiah, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and shall be in bitterness, repentance, deep, heartfelt, widespread repentance among the nation of Israel in that day. In the 14th chapter, he moves on, still further in this same connection, I think, and deals with what shall take place in the last stages of this present age that we live in. He speaks of the day of the Lord. And the first thing that he mentions here is the instigation of a worldwide assault on the people of God. Verse 2, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Right away, of course, in our minds comes what took place uh, June 67, when 96 millions of people lined up against 2.6 million Jews in the nation of Israel. And uh, during a six-day period, uh, suddenly, in an amazing way, Israel overthrew her enemies. Nations gathered against Jerusalem, and yet what is the real significance? Was that a fulfillment of this prophecy? A partial fulfillment of this prophecy is any relation between what took place there and this prophecy, and there would be numerous ideas about it. Uh, One idea of the fulfillment of this prophecy would be that we should look for a literal assault of nations upon the nation of Jerusalem, something like what was seen uh, a year ago. Only much more widespread, all nations gathered, against the literal city of Jerusalem. And that this would take place uh, at the end of this present age, um, after uh, Christians have long since left this world uh, in the rapture, this would be one view of The type of fulfillment we should expect, literal Jerusalem is meant, would be that view. A literal gathering of literal armies. A second view would be that Jerusalem here stands for the church. Very possibly incorporating the Jewish people as a body having turned to Christ towards the latter part of this age and then this entire people of God, including now the repentant Jews, under worldwide attack, the Church, including the Jews, under worldwide attack uh, by uh, hostile forces, all of those who are hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This group, who would interpret it that way, would see a parallel passage in Revelation 20, and if you would, I would like for you to keep your place and then look over at Revelation 20. They would see in Revelation 20, verse 7 following, a parallel passage to this gathering of the nations against Jerusalem. When the thousand years are expired, the thousand years that Satan has been bound, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go forth to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed about the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Uh, This picture in Revelation 20 of the camp of the saints being under assault, the beloved city, uh, many would interpret as being a worldwide persecution of Christianity of the strongest and most bitter nature, something of what you would have in uh, Russia and uh, China today, only spread around the world. That situation existed. They would see that as the very same great war that Zechariah is speaking of. The third group of interpreters, would see this war as something that has constantly been going on ever since the first coming of Jesus Christ. That since that time, hostile forces have always been against the Church, and yet God, in his mercy, has always kept them from being too successful, has always kept his remnant in safety, the true believers, has always seen to it that he was not left without a witness and this third group would feel that very possibly there would be a culmination in the last days of this attack that is constantly going on. Three groups, one, the literal Jerusalem at the end of this age under attack. Two, the church, in its worldwide aspects, including uh, the repentant Jews in a last great persecution, an effort to wipe out the church. The third group, It's constantly being fulfilled in the persecution that the Church undergoes at the hands of the world. Which of these three is correct? Well, I'd like to say all three. That's an easy way out. I really believe, very possibly, that all three could be true. Certainly the Church is constantly under attack. Certainly this could be an increasing thing in our day. More Christians have been martyred than in all other church history put together. Uh, Certainly it looks like we're heading up to some great worldwide persecution of the church. Certainly there could also be a literal fulfillment of forces gathered against Jerusalem which would comprise a part of this worldwide attack on the Church, there could be a sense in which all three of these things would be true. And I, I tend to feel that way myself. Notice the source of these forces, the gathering of these forces. God gathers them. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. That's not to say that uh, the Lord puts in the hearts of non-Christians hatred of Christians, or that the Lord puts hatred in anyone's heart of other people. They hate them of their own accord. But it is to say that God, who is restraining the forces of evil so that uh, their animosity does not reach the crescendo of, that it otherwise would reach will cease to restrain, and will allow this animosity between the world and God's people to come to a head. This is brought out particularly in in the Thessalonian letter, the second Thessalonian letter of Paul, when he speaks in the second chapter of the coming of a great leader, the man of sin, or the Antichrist, who will oppose and exalt himself against all that is called God, in the fourth verse. Then in the sixth verse of Second Thessalonians, second chapter, now you know what is restraining him, this man from appearing, from being revealed at this time. It is so that he may be manifested, revealed in his own appointed time, for the mystery of lawlessness, that rebellion against God, that hidden principle of rebellion against constituted authority is already at work in the world, but it is restrained only until he who restrains it is taken out of the way, ceases restraining. And then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to an end by his appearing at his coming. Uh, the animosity, which is already at work in the world, but is restrained, will one day be allowed by God to culminate in a final great effort at overthrowing God's people. Notice the success. They are quite successful up to a point. As it says that uh, the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, the city of God's church under besiegement, or his people, however we look at it, that the efforts against them shall be successful up to a point. Great harm, and great persecution ensuing. But the residue of the people, a remnant, shall not be cut off. There will be a remnant. And then notice the sudden intervention on the part of God. First, the instigation of this worldwide assault. Second, the intervention by a sudden advent on the part of God. In the third verse, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. You've got uh, just when the scene is darkest. when The enemies of God's people seem completely victorious. God himself appears in a form of terrible majesty and takes part against the invading nations. It compares it with the battles of long ago, when God would go forth on behalf of his people, uh, as when he fought in the day of battle, as when he fought against Pharaoh's forces and overthrew them as when he fought in the day of Gideon's conquest of the Midianites, as when he fought uh, when the Assyrians came up against Hezekiah and the angel of God went forth and slew 185,000 overnight, uh, as he manifested himself in behalf of his people before, again, God will go forth and overthrow their enemies. Uh, The coming with the saints. In verse 4, his feet shall stand that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And then jumping down to the last part of the fifth verse, and the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints, or all the holy ones, with thee. A more literal translation. And there comes Jehovah, my God, and all saints with thee. There comes Jehovah, my God, suddenly, in a visible way, God coming forth with his holy ones. Right away, someone familiar with the New Testament would think not only of this passage in Revelation 20, when, as the camp is under attack, suddenly fire comes from heaven. But we think of the passage that deals with the Lord Jesus coming with his mighty angels in flaming fire to take vengeance on those that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus, spoken of in Second Thessalonians, the first chapter. Or, again, when he comes with his angels, and and all nations are gathered before him in judgment. Many passages speak of the coming of Jesus Christ, his second coming. Remember that when Christ left, when he ascended, that two angels stood by as he ascended from the Mount of Olives, and they told his followers, Why do you stand gazing in the heavens? This same Jesus will so come in like manner as you have seen him go. He went from the Mount of Olives, and here the Mount of Olives is mentioned as the point upon which his feet shall stand. I tend to take this as a very literal description of Christ's second coming, with his mighty angels and also with the saints. The Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Those who are asleep in Jesus he will bring with him. Christians brought with him, his mighty angels also brought with him, fire accompanying this wreaking terrible vengeance on those that know not God. The cleaving of the mountain, as it says in verse 4, the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. In verse 5, ye shall flee to the valley. Here's a valley through which the people escape. God's people are given a way of deliverance right at this crucial moment. This I tend to not take literally as a cleaving of the mountain, but I do take as picturing the great deliverance that shall be given. Possibly it will be the catching up, as mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4. When the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, With the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall be raised, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. The next thing that he speaks of in the passage is the introduction of a new state of things, a new state of things. In verse 6, it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. It shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night. But it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. Here's a change in terms of where our light comes from. It will not be morning and night. It will always be light. The thing that immediately comes to mind is the picture in Revelation 21 of the new heavens and the new earth. In verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more seed. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then if you will jump on over in Revelation 21 to verse 23. The new heavens and the new earth, the new state of things. The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. Verse 25, The gate shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Again, looking back at your uh, passage in Zechariah 14, the next thing that he mentions, having spoken of the change in the light, the constancy of light, now he speaks of the abundance of living water. In verse 8, it shall be in that day that living waters shall go forth out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. Right away we should have our minds shaken about any literalistic interpretation. Living water speaks of salvation, of the blessings of God. Christ told the woman at the well, if you knew who I was, you would ask of me, I would give you living water. The tremendous blessings of God upon his people that shall be in that new state of things. And again, our minds turn back to the new heavens, the new earth. Revelation 22 now, verse 1. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Right away, we pick up where we are. Where are we in this description that Zechariah gives? We are in the new heavens and the new earth. We are in the new state of things that Jesus Christ shall usher in with his return. The universality of lordship is then spoken of back in Zechariah 14. In the next verse, the ninth verse, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. The universality of lordship in the new heavens and the new earth, the new state of things described in Revelation, he says, there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him. And finally, in Zechariah 14, the elevation of the land, and again, this should take a literal concept directly out of our minds. Verse 10, all the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Roman south of Jerusalem, and it, Jerusalem, shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place. Here, the city of Jerusalem is raised up and everything else is lowered. Now, this is not literal. This speaks of the exaltation of God's people in that final state of things, in the strength, and the rest of the world, the rest of people humble. In the presence of the church. The instigation of this great assault, the sudden intervention of God, the introduction of a new state of things, a new heavens, a new earth, the infliction of awful punishment upon the enemies of God's people. In verse 12, Of Zechariah 14, this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord shall smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. This awful consuming of flesh on living bodies right as they stand there. And we think of this sudden picture of flame enveloping people. Then we think of the nuclear power that only in our day we've discovered that the universe is stored with, that could be sent off in a second at God's command. Something holds the nucleus of the atom together and no one knows what it is, because inside the nucleus of the atom there are forces at work that should cause the atom to burst asunder. And the whole universe to dissolve, but something holds it together, and in Colossians 1.17 it says, The Lord Jesus Christ, by him all things cohere. And Peter says that the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, in which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the element shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth and the things therein shall be burned up, seeing that all of these things shall be dissolved. And right after that, he speaks of a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. In other words, what Peter says, what Revelation says, what Paul says, it ties in with what Zachariah says, if you use that particular form of interpretation. The new heavens and the new earth, the infliction of this awful punishment on the enemies of God, the consuming of flesh, the confusion of forces, as he goes on to say that in the thirteenth verse, it shall come to pass that in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them. They shall lay hold every one, on the hand of his neighbor. Here's civil war as a part of the awful punishment of those forces. And finally, the incorporation of all peoples into the true worship of God. This does not mean those who never received Jesus Christ. But in this final state of things, all who are there shall worship the true God. This should be really included under the final state, the introduction of the final state. Verse 16, It shall come to pass that everyone that is left Of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whosoever will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. You've got pictured here the conversion of the heathen. This is a confusing thing right at this point. Right here, until this point, everything has been consistent with the interpretation we've sought to give. But right here, you hit a confusing thing. If what we've had pictured speaks of the new heavens and the new earth, the final state of things, how could it be those in the new heavens and the new earth who would yet rebel against God? And the answer is that there will not be. And that this verse does not intend for us to think that there will be any who will rebel against God. We've already been told that there would be one Lord throughout the whole land and that men would all serve him. And we've been told that all nations would come up and worship uh, there uh, from year to year to worship the king. Rather, what is being brought before us as the Lutheran commentator Leupold says, since the final outcome of things is being depicted, and since in the consummation all evil and ungodliness will have been entirely overcome, then this is uh, not to be taken as saying there would be such, or as Thomas More says, it is not meant to be implied that at that time predicted there shall be such disobedient persons. For in verse 16, it is clearly implied that there will be none of such. It is rather a figurative assertion of the fact that in this future condition, the present mingled state of reward and punishment shall end. Right now, if someone resists God, what happens? fire doesn't suddenly come down from heaven and devour them. God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. But in that day, this present situation will no longer exist. Those who are guilty will have been punished. And those who have turned to the Lord, uh, they will be there in that new state, and they will be obedient to him. Notice the consecration of the horses in verse 20. In that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. In other words, in this final state, everything will be thoroughly dedicated to the Lord. Every heart surrendered to Jesus Christ, it brings before us even the horses on their bells will have holiness unto the Lord. There won't be a thing in that final state that will not be thoroughly consecrated to God. Not a person, not a thing. The way Peter puts it, he puts it like this. Uh, But we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And then finally, uh, he mentions that there will be a cleansing of the house. The last part of the 21st verse. In that day there shall be no more Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. In that day there will be none present who is not a true worshiper of God, no hypocrites, none who worship in name only, no Canaanite, no heathen in the house of the Lord. Uh, The way it's put in Revelation 21, as it speaks of the final state, it says in verse 27, There shall in no wise enter into it, this city of God, anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh the lie." but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. We ought to learn something from this. We ought to learn to be careful in how we interpret Scripture. You see, I can very easily make my system fit, and I can poke holes in anybody else's system, great big holes that you cannot avoid. And then there are those who can poke holes in mine. I can avoid them, but not to their satisfaction. We need to be careful. Because in prophecy, we could cause division among God's people that is sinful. God would have us to be united in the faith, and we're never going to all agree on exactly how much is literal and exactly how much is figurative. In the first coming of Jesus Christ, some things were fulfilled literally, some things were fulfilled symbolically, figuratively. So it shall be in the second coming. We need to be careful. There are strong elements to be said for each of these three interpretations that we've mentioned. Second, we should realize that the people of God are in for a rough time. And the things that are happening in our day would indicate that it's going to be our generation. I believe that with all my heart. And I don't believe that those who are ungrounded and those who are uncommitted are going to stand. If you and I are not willing to take abuse for the cause of Christ, if we're not willing to tell the world that we're a Christian and stand to it regardless of the barbs that come and the and the laughs and the hoots and the misunderstanding, if we're not willing to stand today in our situation, whatever the cost may be, will we stand in this day? I think not. He that is faithful in little, the same is faithful in much. And if you will not be faithful in the little, when the going gets rough, you will not stand. It's going to take every ounce of grounding that we can give our children. Redeem the time. There is a day in store for some generation of Christians, and I believe our own, that will be dreadful. Russia and China, it's going to be far worse than that. There is deliverance that shall come to God's people just when the hour is darkest. And here is something to garrison your heart about. When the going gets rough, think of his promise of deliverance in that day. Christ is coming to earth, literally. He will come back. And there will be one Lord. And if he's not your Lord, you will be among those that undergo that awful infliction of punishment. And our neighbors and our friends will undergo it if they have not received Jesus Christ as Lord. I tell you, Christianity is a dead and earnest thing. And God will hold us responsible if you do not warn the wicked of these things. Then he says, I will require it in your hand." There is a sense in which this is being fulfilled constantly, that constantly the church is under temptation and persecution and trial, and constantly the Lord makes himself available to deliver, and we should constantly be looking to him to do it. What about your situation? Are you consecrated to Christ? Do you really mean business? Are you faithful in the little things now? Have you ever really committed yourself to this Lord? Is he your Lord now? Have you faced up to the fact that there is a meaning to this universe, that the Bible is true, that Jesus Christ was not a lunatic? Have you faced up to these things, and those are the issues, either Christ was crazy or he is the Son of God, and have you submitted to him? And if not, what about tonight? To hear, to know, and to say no is a very risky business.